On this July 4th weekend in which we celebrate our great country, there is indeed much to be thankful for. And we need to be reminded of that occasionally because if we merely look at the headlines and all of the struggles, we might forget that we do in fact live in a great country and are blessed because of it. But at the same time, we are quick to acknowledge that our nation is seeing her share of struggles these days. Whether it is the political divide which seems to be growing, along with the fact that civil discussions across party lines are virtually impossible. It is true now that we simply cannot talk about politics because we cannot handle listening to those who disagree with us and talking civilly to them. Or it might be a specific issue like immigration or poverty, perhaps the long-running struggle over abortion, all of which draws emotional responses from all sides, which further divides and escalates the rhetoric. Many would say that there are greater issues below the surface, that these that I've just mentioned and many others are merely symptoms of a greater problem, and that greater problem is the fact, the undeniable fact, that our country is moving away from God. There is no doubt that we are becoming more and more secular and less and less interested in God. Every study on the religious affections of our people in our nation tell us the same story. And that is more and more are no longer identifying with any religious organization. They are now called the nuns and their population is growing. And so the problem we see before us seemingly is only going to get worse. And so we boldly proclaim as a church what America needs is revival. What America needs is to return to God, the foundation upon which this country was founded. And I would certainly agree with that. But I would also suggest that what America needs is also what the church needs. We who are within the church are often very good at pointing our spiritual fingers at those who are outside the church, telling them what they're doing wrong and where they have erred and what they need to do in order to get back on the right track. And yet, we are immersed in the very same culture. Whether we realize it or not, or whether we can identify it in our own lives, we face the same problems and the same struggles, and the first step for those of us within the body is to acknowledge that this is the case. So I want to talk today not about the faith of America. I want to talk about your faith and mine. Now, when we think about the word faith, we normally think in salvation terms. We know that the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved, and this is through faith not of works, lest any man should boast. And so when we talk about faith, we instinctively go to that initial element of salvation where we repent of our sins and by faith trust in what Christ has done for us. And indeed, that is the first step. But that is not primarily what I'm talking about this morning. I am talking about what we might call ongoing faith, though obviously ongoing faith must begin with saving faith, but I'm talking about the faith that we possess as we are sanctified, as we walk with Christ. And as we've said in the past, that kind of faith rises and falls. That is, there are times when we think we have the faith that Jesus said could indeed move mountains. There are also times when we wonder if we have any faith at all. 
And sometimes it is circumstances that bring our faith crashing down. Circumstances like health problems, especially those health problems that are prolonged over a number of years. Or it might be financial or relational setbacks that we did not see coming. Whatever the trigger, we sometimes find ourselves filled with doubts about God, wondering about God's goodness and love toward us rather than the faith that we know we once possessed. And so wherever you find yourself on what I'm calling the spectrum of faith this morning, somewhere between that initial element of saving faith and that perfect faith that we will not attain until we see Christ, wherever you are on that spectrum of faith this morning, I think it's safe to say we ought to all have a desire to increase in our faith. So for Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, that is what we are going to talk about. We are going to pray with this Father in the story, Lord, increase our faith. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I be with you? I'm sorry. How long then shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, now this is where I'm getting our title. I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and to never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, our story begins this week where we left off two weeks ago. And that is with Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, that inner circle of His disciples coming down from the mountain and reuniting with the other nine disciples. You'll recall that Jesus had gone up on the mountain with these men in what we call the transfiguration. 
they were allowed to see a glimpse of God's glory. And what a tremendous moment it must have been. Perhaps the best moment of their lives up until this particular point. So much so that Peter famously wanted to stay. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Why don't I build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, so that we can remain on this spiritual mountain? But Peter learned what many of us have already learned, and that is you cannot live on the spiritual mountain. Invariably, you must come down to the valley, and when you come down to the valley, that is where faith meets with reality. You remember that Moses had to come down from Mount Sinai. And when he came down from Mount Sinai, what he found was immorality and idolatry. You remember that Elijah had to come down from Mount Horeb. And what he found when he came down from Mount Horeb was that he had to run for his life from an angry Jezebel. So what will Jesus and these three disciples find when they come down from the mountain and faith must intersect with reality? Well, they find the other nine disciples, along with the customary crowd that we've seen frequently follows Jesus. Among that crowd is a demon-possessed boy and his father, and there are, of course, some scribes. In fact, the presence of the scribes in this story is why so many scholars believe that the transfiguration happened on Mount Tabor. It is further south in Jewish territory. But we said a couple of weeks ago that in all likelihood, it actually happened on Mount Hermon for two reasons. Number one, it is closer in proximity to Caesarea Philippi, which is where they were prior to going up on the mountain, and it is a significantly higher mountain than Tabor. And so there is no reason to conclude that these scribes could not have journeyed out of Jewish territory, especially when we understand that they are seeking after Jesus, not to learn from Him, but because they believe he is disturbing the people and leading them astray, and so they are here to gather evidence against him. And so when Jesus and these three come back down from the mountain, they encounter an argument between the nine disciples and the scribes. The scribes were likely mocking the disciples for their inability to help the father and his son. It was certainly customary to assume that the students of a rabbi had the same power and authority of that rabbi, not just Jesus and his disciples, but we've talked about the fact that this was a common relationship in the first century. So it was assumed that the students would have been given the same power and authority that the teacher had, but because they were unable to deliver this particular boy, the scribes are no doubt taking advantage of Jesus' absence and casting doubt not just upon the ability of the disciples, but more importantly, upon Jesus himself and his ministry. But when the crowds notice the arrival of Jesus, they are amazed and immediately gather around him. Now, this response of amazement or astonishment is not new to us. We have seen it repeatedly in Mark's gospel. The difference is we have seen it after Jesus has done something. That is, after He's performed an exorcism, after He has done a miracle, after He has healed somebody, naturally the crowd is amazed and astonished. But in this story, He has not done anything at this point. He has merely come down and arrived among the crowd, and yet they are already astonished. 
From this, some people conclude that his face must be shining, even as Moses' did when he came down from Mount Sinai. So his appearance has been transformed by what has happened on the mountain, and there is still a glimpse of that, which is why the people were astonished. But if that were true, then Jesus' command to the three disciples who were with him to be silent about what they had seen is rather pointless. So I don't think it's because he looked any different. I think it's simply because he arrived unexpectedly and suddenly they were, not a, they were not expecting his arrival and therefore they are excited, they are stirred up because he is there once again. Nothing like coming down from a spiritual high to an immediate argument with those who are trying to hinder your ministry. Sounds, like, sounds a lot like the church sometimes, doesn't it? Great worship services on Sunday. Everybody's excited and praising the Lord. And then you show up into the office on Monday morning and there is that text or that email criticizing something that has transpired the day before, bringing the minister down to the valley rather quickly. But it happens to you too. Gathering with the body of Christ on Sunday, singing praises to God, studying the Word of God, you have a bit of a spiritual high. But then you've got to go to work on Monday. You've still got to deal with that overbearing boss and those employees who are doing their best to go behind your back and get the job or the, the uh, increase that you want. Maybe it's at home. The spiritual high comes down as soon as you go back home. Maybe it's both. You're struggling at home and at work. This is where faith meets reality. Is our faith merely a Sunday morning emotion that elevates us to a spiritual high one time a week, but then it is unable to deal with the realities that we face on a given day? Or is our faith strong enough not only to help us survive the realities of life, but to thrive in the midst of those realities? We see in this story that faith does, in fact, meet reality. But secondly, we notice that faith and failure come together. I mean, what if we add to the reality of our daily lives the fact that we have failure as well, that dreaded word that we will often try anything within our power to avoid? In fact, some people going to the extreme never risk anything because they're afraid of failure. They just don't try anything because they think if they don't try anything, then they won't fail. And so they just remain content if that's the right word, where they are, because they don't want to risk anything in order to succeed because they're afraid of failure. But the fact remains, every single one of us will fail. None of us are perfect. We will all make bad choices. We will all make poor decisions. We will all fail. So the question is not, will we fail? The question is, how will our faith integrate with our failure when those two things come together? The disciples have not been idle while Jesus has been on the mountain with the three. These nine have continued to minister, in this case specifically, to a man and his son in the absence of Jesus. We've examined similar stories to this already. This will be the last exorcism that Mark records for us, and it is one of the more dramatic. In fact, Mark's version is much more detailed than either Matthew or Luke's and I remind you that Mark, in all likelihood, is getting his information from Peter. So Peter is an eyewitness, and he is giving this information to Mark, who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is recording these details for us. 
We will get to the exorcism itself in just a moment, but first we must examine the intersection of faith and failure in regard to the disciples' inability to heal this particular boy. Now, keep in mind that they had this power before. Do you remember that? In chapter 6, Jesus had sent the disciples out in pairs. These same 12 men had been sent out in pairs to minister without Jesus. And the text tells us there that Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And when they returned, that story tells us, chapter 6 and verse 13, that they, that is the disciples, cast out many demons. And so they've had this power, they have had this authority, and therefore it is no wonder that they are perplexed in this story as to why they were unable to heal this particular boy, which is why when they get Jesus alone in the house, they ask Him. Now, it's clear that a lack of faith was a large part of the problem based on Jesus' initial response to hearing the news. He calls someone a faithless generation. The question is, who is he talking to there? When he says, oh, faithless generation, who is he referring to? Well, there's four basic options. Number one, he could be directing his comment to the Father himself. Number two, it could be the disciples, the nine disciples in their inability to heal the boy. Number three, it could be the scribes. Or number four, it could be a general statement for the crowd. Or there is a fifth option. If you remember your multiple choices from school, there was, generally speaking, a fifth option, that letter E that said all of the above. And I think that's the answer here. I think there is no one in this story who is demonstrating any kind of great faith whatsoever, and Jesus is frustrated with all of them because of their faithlessness. In fact, He lets His frustration show by exclaiming, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? He's wondering aloud of what is going to happen when he is physically gone. If this is how they minister in the brief time of his temporary absence, how are they going to minister when he dies and rises again and returns to his father? Well, back to the question, why did the disciples fail? Why were they unable to cast out this demon? It appears, based on Jesus' final answer, one we will get to in a moment, that they were not relying on their relationship with God. Having had the power in the past, it seems that in the present, they were presuming upon that power and authority that they once had and simply assuming that they would always have it. That's another way of saying that they were relying on their own strengths and on their own gifts. We might even say that now their faith is inwardly focused where it should have been upwardly focused, leading me to ask us, where is our faith focused? On whom is our faith pointed? That is, it's not enough just to have faith. We have to know in whom we have that faith. We have to know in which direction our faith is pointing. Believe it or not, this is still an ongoing danger in ministry in particular. Serving God, using our gifts and our abilities in our own strength and with our own wisdom rather than continually turning to God, which is a needed reminder for us 
that we must consistently rely on God. Past spiritual victories are no guarantee of power for ministry today, especially when we are trusting in ourselves and our abilities rather than in Christ. So we've seen that faith meets reality. When they come down from the mountain, their faith has to be exercised in the day-to-day activities of life. And then we've seen, secondly, that faith meets failure. That is, what are we going to do when we have times of failure, whether that's in the spiritual realm or whether that's in another area of life? Are we going to have the faith to learn from and advance from failure rather than it having us whether, rather than allowing it to bring us down. But thirdly, we need to get to faith and pleading. And that is where we get to the heart of this story and the exorcism of this young boy with a father who is pleading for Jesus to do something. Jesus asks a question. What is this argument about between the disciples and the scribes? But he never gets an answer to this question. Instead, a man steps forward with this tragic story one whose details are repeated by Mark at least three times, certainly for emphasis. His son is demon-possessed, and the symptoms of that demon possession are an inability to speak, convulsions, including foaming at the mouth, and becoming rigid. At times, he is even thrown into fire or water. Clearly, the demon is designed, his goal is to destroy this particular boy. And this has been going on for some time. We don't know how long because we do not know how old he is in this story. But when Jesus asks how long it's been going on, his answer is this has been occurring since childhood. So this boy and his father have suffered for a very long time. Now Matthew explicitly states that this boy has epilepsy. While at the same time he acknowledges that Jesus casts a demon out of him. Now, this is not in contradiction. Both of these can be true and are, in in this case, true. This young man is suffering from a demon resulting in epileptic seizures. Now, those of you who have either gone through this yourself or have witnessed this in a loved one know how terrifying this is to watch as you can almost helplessly stand by and not do much. But do please understand that this boy had a demon which manifested itself in in epilepsy, but that is not the case for everyone who suffers that today. I do not want you to make that leap, particularly with this illness or any other illness for that matter, that someone who is suffering from it must also have a demon. Do not make those kinds of leaps and add more pain to people who are already enduring such things. When this man finished giving the information... Notice what he says. He says in verse 22 to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, on the one hand, we need to give this man a little bit of credit. He has shown some measure of faith, as small as it might be, in bringing the boy to Jesus in the first place. You don't bring him to Jesus unless you believe that Jesus might be able to do something. But whatever faith he came with is now long gone, primarily because the disciples have failed in casting this demon out and healing the boy. Have you ever thought about how your lack of faith or mine can actually bring others down in the process? 
how your lack of faith can then lead to a lack of faith in other people there following you in your faithlessness. Again, I'm not saying this man had great faith to begin with, but the circumstances have clearly reduced whatever faith he came with to clear doubts. Because now he says, if you can do anything, which is not the way to begin an address with a God who can do everything. And notice how Jesus responds, if you can, followed by all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus is saying to him, you are doubting my ability, and my ability is not the problem here. If you can, all things are possible for those who believe. Now, let's just be honest and say we have a little bit of a problem with that statement. Not because we don't like it. We do like it. But we have a problem with it because our experience seems to contradict it. Because we have examples in our own lives of times when we think we had great faith and we in great faith asked Jesus for something and Jesus did not give that to us. And yet here he says, all things are possible if you believe. And so we have to ask the question, are the health and wealth preachers correct? Are they right? That the reason we don't have what we want and have asked for in faith is because we don't have enough faith? Because if we did have enough faith, we would clearly have what we've asked for. And taking this statement by Jesus out of context could certainly lead to that conclusion. But in context, we have to see that Jesus is highlighting this man's lack of faith. In some of the other miracles we've studied, it seems like faith is not even a part of it. It is certainly not mentioned or not emphasized, but here in this particular case, it is. Jesus wants this man to see and understand that the ability of God is certainly not the problem. It is disbelief that is the problem, and this problem is actually a greater opposition and more serious obstacle than even the scribes. All of this leads to this cry. This man pleading with Jesus, he now understands that the ability of Jesus is not the problem. His own lack of faith is, and so he acknowledges, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. On the one hand, this is an affirmation of faith. I believe. But that affirmation of faith is followed immediately by a confession of inadequacy. Help my unbelief. And there is no contradiction between these two. In fact, genuine faith is always aware of how inadequate and small it really is. And it is another way to drive us to a greater reliance upon Christ. So following the pleading, and after one more attempt by the demon, Jesus miraculously heals the boy. But things actually get worse before they get better. Because after the demon leaves the boy, the boy looks as if he is dead. That is what the majority of the crowd thinks. We're not told exactly what the father thinks. But the father certainly could have been with the majority of the crowd and thinking to himself, I came for healing for my son. The demon's gone, but now my son is dead. There is no indication that he was really dead. It's just that he looked like it. But the language that is used here, the language that is used is language that is used elsewhere to speak of death and resurrection. 
And I don't think that is by accident. There is a lot of similarity between this story and a story we examined earlier where Jesus uh, brought back from the dead Jairus' daughter. Couple the language that is found here with the fact that Jesus has just told in chapter 8, he has just told the disciples for the first time about his death and resurrection. And then go to verses 30 through 32, the immediate verses after this story, and there for the second time, Jesus is going to say the same thing, that he is going to die and be raised again. So this miracle is sandwiched between the first and second predictions of Jesus to his disciples of his death and resurrection, leading to the conclusion that there is more to this story. We've said that throughout. There is always more to these stories than first meets the eye. This is not just about a a father who is pleading with Jesus for the healing of his son, though clearly that is here. This is also about Jesus for the first time painting a picture before the eyes of his disciples of what is going to occur to him, that he is going to die and he is going to rise again. And this image, this object lesson is right before their eyes. Well, finally, I want us to examine the intersection between faith and prayer. In response to the private question from the disciples about their failure in faith, Jesus says that faith and prayer go together. Now, some translations, the King James notably, adds the word fasting there as well by prayer and fasting. That is found in a number of manuscripts, many manuscripts, in fact, But the word fasting is not found in the two oldest and most reliable. And by using the phrase, this kind, Jesus is not trying to say that there are some kinds of exorcism that need prayer and there are some kinds that do not. The this kind refers to battling with the enemy, spiritual battles with the enemy, all take faith and prayer. Now, we talked earlier about the failure of the disciples, and the implication here is that a large measure of their failure was not just a lack of faith, but it was also the lack of prayer. That that is why we continued to talk about and concluded that they were relying on their own strength and their own ability. Those things that they had had in the past and now are assuming they will always have in the present rather than relying upon God. Prayer is a good external indicator of whether or not we genuinely have faith in God. After all, if we believe that God is a good God who acts, we will ask Him. So if we have no faith in God's ability or we question His willingness to help, then we won't pray. There's no reason to pray if we don't think God is able or will act. Or if we are satisfied with our own strengths and our own ability, again, there is no reason in our own minds to pray because we can handle this ourselves. And while prayer is difficult for many believers, we even question the the concepts behind it at times, it is clearly and unmistakably commanded in Scripture numerous times, along with the fact that we see examples of people doing it in Scripture repeatedly, including Jesus Himself. Prayer is, in essence, faith turned toward God. We are acknowledging in prayer our own needs and our inability to meet those needs, and the ability of God to meet them. That's why we are turning to God in prayer for our needs. There is a very popular saying that comes from a faulty interpretation of Scripture. 
And that saying is, God will not give you more than you can handle. That sounds very good. And it sounds like a great Christian post. Perhaps you've even put that on your Facebook page or Instagram wall. The problem with it, it is simply not true. The truth is, God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. And He might just do it regularly. Because in giving you more than you can handle, He is trying to drive you to Himself. We are called to do things that are well beyond our ability to do because we need to understand that we cannot do them, at least not without God, and therefore we are called to pray. And in the process of prayer, faith is strengthened because our relationship with God becomes stronger and we see repeated examples of how God is faithful in fulfilling His promises. Now, in all of this, we must keep two biblical principles in mind. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As a side note, that is perhaps the most misused verse in all of the Bible because it is not saying you can do absolutely anything. You have to look at that verse as you do any verse in context. But it does say we must rely upon Christ. He is the one who strengthens us. And then, of course, the word of Jesus himself who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Both of these, one might say one is a positive statement and one is a negative, but they both teach the same thing. They drive us to understand that faith and prayer go together and that we need both of them and that one does not exist or at least grow without the other. So we need to understand that we never grow beyond our need for Christ. Now, we started out by saying that most of us, maybe all of us, have a desire or at least ought to have a desire to increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith. It's not exactly the words this Father says, but it's close. And it is exactly the words that the disciples say as recorded by Luke in chapter 17 and verse 5. So how do we increase in our faith? Well, first of all, you have to have faith. You can't increase in that which you do not have. So that goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning. You have to repent of your sins and by faith trust in what Christ has done for you. That is the saving element of faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. That comes first. You cannot pray for God to increase your faith until you first have what we call saving faith. Then secondly, having done that, I would say that we need to recognize the inadequacy of our own faith. We will never desire an increase in faith until we recognize that the faith we have currently is not the level that we desire. And that is not a slam on your faith. I'm not criticizing your faith or mine. I'm simply acknowledging the truth that all of us have room to grow in our faith because our faith is not perfect in this life. And we need to recognize that so that we will cry out and say, increase our faith. Thirdly, realize that failure is a part of life. Again, everyone fails. This does not make you a failure. There is a big difference from failing and being a failure. The truth is that failure can actually lead to further dependence upon God, and thus, even in failure, we can have our faith increased because it drives us to greater dependence upon Jesus. 
Obviously, increasing our faith must be combined with an increase in our prayer life. That is certainly what Jesus is getting at at the end of this story. And I would add as well that part of our prayer ought to be specifically asking for an increase in our faith. There is nothing wrong with praying Scripture, so this is, a, is part of our prayer. Lord, increase my faith. You would expect then that I would add a growing knowledge of God through His Word. That is something I consistently say, and I do not say it consistently merely because it is a passion of mine. I say it because it is true. The more we know about God, the more likely our faith is to increase, and we cannot know more about God apart from the Word that He has revealed to us. So a growing knowledge of the Word is going to result in an increase in our faith. Finally, we must admit that an increase in faith takes time and experience, which means this is a commitment over the long haul. It is like so many areas of our lives. We want the end result without the effort that it takes to get there. We want the blessings without the hard work. And that's simply not the way most of of life works, and certainly not this. If we really want to see an increase in our faith, it is going to have to be a priority over the long haul. You are not going to pray, Lord, increase my faith, and when you come to work tomorrow, your faith is going to be dramatically increased. It is not going to happen in one week. Don't expect to gather with us again next Sunday and everybody come up to you and say, would you tell me how your faith has grown so stupendously in just one week? That's just not the way it works. This is a commitment over time and through experience. Lord, increase my faith. Is that your desire? If it's not, I mean, if you're honest with yourself this morning and you say, I'm just content where I am, I really have no desire to increase my faith, then what I'm asking you to do is to pray for God to give you that desire. Because nobody ought to be content where we are when it comes to this topic, because we all have room to grow. And so if you're not desiring this, I would ask you to pray, Lord, give me the desire to grow in my faith. And if you're already there, you have that desire, then I would encourage you to consider the steps I've just outlined as part of, I'm sure there's other steps you could think of, but as part of your desire for this desire to become a reality, that you would grow in your faith, that you would do these things we've just talked about. Let's pray.